0: Welcome to what I can officially say is the single largest gathering of small business in this country.
1: This is Exchanges at Goldman Sachs, where we discuss developments currently shaping markets, industries, and the global economy. And today, we're all about small businesses. You just heard the voice of John Rogers, an executive vice president at the firm, and chairman of the Goldman Sachs Foundation. In that clip, he was welcoming more than 2,000 attendees to the Goldman Sachs 10,000 Small Businesses Summit, held in Washington, D.C. in mid-February. As you heard him say, it was the largest ever gathering of small business owners in the United States. Over the course of two days, these owners discussed their biggest challenges to growth and also had the opportunity to bring those concerns to Capitol Hill and to their members of Congress. Here are a few voices of small business owners addressing the crowd are the power of small business.
0: We are swimming in success and our potential is limitless.
1: Small businesses have a voice that must be heard and we can make a difference. The summit was convened by the Goldman Sachs 10,000 Small Businesses Program, which seeks to help educate and provide access to capital to small business owners. So far, nearly 7,000 people have gone through the program in the United States. So on this podcast, we'll hear more from some of those small business owners in their own words. Joining us in the studio today are Steve Strongin and Amanda Henlian. Steve is the head of the firm's Global Investment Research Division and also chairs the Global Markets Institute. Amanda is COO of Global Investment Research and is the director of the Global Markets Institute. Over the past few months, their team spent time with many of the owners from the 10,000 Small Businesses Program and came away with some very interesting insights into the impediments small business owners face as they work to grow and to compete successfully. Steve and Amanda, welcome to the program.
2: Thanks for having us. Thank you.
1: So small businesses make up 99% plus of all enterprises in the United States. They employ 60 million Americans, nearly half the national workforce. Steve, against that backdrop, how would you describe the state of small business in the country at this moment from an economist's point of view?
3: It's been hard. This particular period in history, we've seen very strong growth on the corporate side and much smaller growth than normal on small businesses. They've had a tougher time getting credit, and they've had a tougher time dealing with the amount of regulations that have been running through the economy.
1: And so the bigger getting bigger, and the small are staying small.
3: And there's fewer of them.
1: Amanda, your team surveyed more than 1,000 small business owners who have participated in the program to learn about the challenges they face. A hundred of those owners also participate in focus groups or little roundtables with your team, which helped inform the research on the topic. Given these are businesses that have different specialties, participate in different industries, were there any unifying themes that came through in the work?
2: Yeah, it's an interesting question, Jake. You know, look, you're right. We had over a thousand respondents to our survey. We met with over a hundred of the small business owners in roundtable formats And you heard it in the clips earlier, there's so much enthusiasm from these small business owners. It was palpable at the summit itself. One of the most unifying themes that we heard from small business owners is they just have too much to do. Their own time is their greatest constraint, and the complexity is one of the biggest issues they face, whether from a regulatory perspective or otherwise. And so when you think about a small business owner today, and that was consistent with what we heard from, again, the survey and the focus groups, they are not only the small business owner. They are also the CFO. They are the head of compliance. They are the general counsel. They are the chief marketing officer. And so one unifying theme across a variety of industries and and folks with whom we met was just the overwhelming burden on their time and the number of things that they have to do.
1: So in the course of this research, you identified three major barriers to small business growth. The first has to do with the difficulty business owners have attracting new employees, managing hiring. Before we dig deeper into that, let's hear what one business owner had to say about this. Lily Harris runs a company called Man Machine Systems Assessment, which is a defense contractor in the D.C. area. Here she is in one of your focus groups talking about her challenges hiring. Let's listen.
2: Staffing, it's the number one thing keeping us from growing. Like, we can write a winning proposal, we can compete, we've got the past performance to win the work. I cannot find engineers and analysts, you know. For government contracting, it's so prescribed. I mean, I have people in 15 different states, so they can even be anywhere, Alaska, like, I'll hire them. But they have to be qualified. What we do is so niche that they have to have the, the right clearance, the right experience, know that defense system. So it's so specific. So if if I could crack that nut, it would be a game changer.
1: So that's small business owner, Lily Harris, on her challenges with respect to hiring. Steve, what's making it so hard for Lily to attract the right kind of talent?
3: That's one of those things that varies a lot from business to business. It's a uniform problem, but the why changes. In Lily's case, she's looking for super specific talent, and she's having to compete with corporations That have human resources departments that scour the world for that talent, that can import it from foreign countries, where she essentially can put up a posting on a website. That's not an easy comparison. More broadly, small businesses don't have quite the same benefits packages. They often don't pay quite the same wages. And they have a harder time discussing the forwards. From a society standpoint, though, this is one of the really important critical elements about small business that's often misunderstood. The result of that difficulty means that small businesses invest in their people in ways that no large corporation would or could. They'll take a person who has the potential but doesn't have exactly the right degree or doesn't have the perfect work history or might even have been in prison or had credit problems that would have been disqualified from a large corporation And they'll teach them how to work. They'll help them learn how to be part of the workforce. And they'll train them in those skills. And as a result, when you look at social mobility and economic mobility in the country, it is the small business owners' difficulty in finding those people that causes them to be one of the great bridges to the economic prosperity in our country. They take the people who otherwise couldn't get in, and they help them across that bridge.
1: So that inability to attract talent for small businesses... Why does it ultimately matter at all for the macroeconomy? And the economy's healthy, it's growing, unemployment's low. So what's the problem?
3: Well, it's a different kind of shared prosperity. When you look at corporations, they're incredibly good at creating GDP. They're very good at taking in sort of classic workers from the right schools and sorting them into the standard job process. They're not nearly as good at helping people who didn't go to the right schools, who maybe didn't graduate in the first place, or who took a wrong step somewhere along the way in bringing them in. They're also not as good at creating jobs in small rural communities. They're not as good at creating jobs in poor urban communities. Those are places where essentially small businesses have always been better at creating the jobs and always been better at creating economic mobility. And so if you want shared prosperity, you really need to have a strong small business sector.
2: And Jake, I would add that that's one of the reasons why You've felt socially, I think, that this particular recovery at times has felt uneven. And when you look at the types of people who small businesses employ, they tend to be younger, meaning people who need a first shot at a job, or older, meaning over the age of 65, who may have transitioned careers multiple times. And they also tend to employ a more diverse workforce in terms of gender and education level. And again, to Steve's point, that type of social and economic mobility is broadly important across this country.
1: The other barrier to growth that you identify was access to financing, Um, not surprisingly, I suppose. You heard a lot about this topic from small business owners. Amanda Davis is president of Widefield Technology, an Arizona-based energy services company. Thomas Rumpf, Jr. is the managing partner of Rumpf & Associates, an accounting firm based in Alpharetta, Georgia. Let's hear what they had to say.
2: One month this year, we made $10,000. The next month, we made $350,000. A traditional bank is going to look at that and go, okay, so there's something wrong here. Traditional banks don't have what I, I think of it as an innovative capital strategy for small businesses, for entrepreneurs. We need money differently and in different ways than other businesses.
0: I went to my bank. I had a $2.2 million per year signed contract with the Centers for Disease Control. They would not lend me a dime. Mm-hmm. Now my credit was good and the government would still not relax to 15 days and I had to put out 400000 And so I went to my 401 and unfortunately I had that in it, plus some, and I pulled it all out and dumped it in.
1: So both of these small business owners talked about needing more flexible access to bank financing in particular Thomas Rump even talked about how he had to resort to using his 401k cuz he couldn't secure a bank loan Steve. He's not the only one, right? You had lots of stories of people dipping into retirement or borrowing money from friends. How do we solve this problem?
3: This is one of those regulatory unintended consequence stories. When we talk about small business financing, inevitably people think about business finance. They tend to think of markets, they think of business loans, the Small Business Administration loans. When you actually look at small businesses, and that's what you heard in these stories, typically it's personal lending. These are small companies, one or two contracts are critical. They don't fit the normal model for a corporate loan. And so typically the lending is done on a personal basis to the owner. It's based on their FICO scores. Over 60% of the funding for all of 10,000 Small Business Summit came on FICO-based scored lending. And so what happened after the financial crisis is that all of the rules that were put in place to tighten up personal credit ended up cutting off credit to small businesses. It wasn't what was intended. Certainly wasn't a good idea. And it really rested on a just misunderstanding of the nature of financing small business.
1: So what's the cumulative impact of that? If every business is all of a sudden leveraging their personal savings or dipping into retirement, what does that mean for the broader economy?
2: Well, I think one of the things that goes back to Steve's point earlier about the fact that there are just fewer small businesses today than you would expect given the recovery – In other words, you need to have a strong enough FICO score or that 401k retirement plan that you can actually dip into to really begin a small business. And so it limits the number of small businesses that can actually form. And again, as we talked about what that means for society and economic mobility and social mobility, there are far-reaching consequences of that.
1: Put some numbers behind that.
2: Well, one of the things we heard, which I thought was really interesting from the survey response was that 75% of them said that if they could double their financing over the next year, they would add 30% more workers to their employee base. Just think about that. That's a substantial number. And it would do a tremendous amount for employment across the country. And small businesses are deeply, heavily embedded in their communities. And it would mean a lot for local communities.
3: And the numbers aren't small even on a macroeconomic basis. Um, Our analysis indicates that this business cycle, you formed about 600,000 fewer small businesses than you would have expected. Even at a small number of jobs per small business, that's a lot of jobs. Yeah. So
1: let's turn to the other barrier to growth, the third one. That has to do with training. Here's another small business owner who took matters into his own hands to deal with training shortfalls. Tomas Santos Alejandro is president of Advent Services, a computer security services company in Panama City, Florida.
3: There's a disconnect, I believe, between the educational system at the higher level and what we need. So what we have chosen to do it's we're going to bring in the folks that we believe have the capability to do it, and we're going to train them ourselves. And so I think the higher education organizations haven't figured out that what we need is' people now. They have tremendous training programs, and if you go through them, you come out with just tremendous knowledge. but You're looking at a minimum of two years at costs of, you know, tens of thousands of dollars. it's It's just not feasible.
1: So, Steve, we need training. Community colleges and other colleges provide it, but it's expensive. It takes a long time. What do we do?
3: Well, you know, we talked about this at the beginning of the podcast. What the small businesses end up doing is they end up doing the training themselves right up front. Sometimes they align themselves with community colleges to help. And that's actually been a major source of very effective training. It's the sort of U.S. equivalent of the apprenticeship programs in Germany. But the problem is we don't recognize that in the tax code. We don't recognize that in education subsidies. If you're a large corporation, you run a training program, it's a write-off. If you run a training program in a small business as an apprenticeship, you get no credit for it. We need to be more realistic about what small businesses do and give them the credit for what they do for society. So those
1: were the top three growth barriers. Let's hear from the business owners themselves about some of the other key issues they care
2: about. I do work in 18 states, and I have to deal with 18 different processes and 18 different registration systems and a thousand different procurement systems. And just the management of that is entirely too much red tape. We call it death by a million cuts in our business, just kind of figuring out how to do business in every single state there is.
3: 60% increases in minimum wage are, they death blows. They're death blows to a business. As someone who lives in the community that I think the minimum wage was designed to improve, there's a very large part of me that is championing the effect that it could have on the community. As a business owner, there's a part of me that is terrified and feels as though we are bearing that burden. So
1: let's talk about some of those issues, red tape, paperwork, challenges navigating rules, regulations, especially when they change suddenly. What do we do?
2: Well, this goes back to the original point at the outset of the the podcast where we talked about the fact that the business owner is not just the business owner in the traditional sense of a CEO, but is involved in multiple aspects of running the business. And one of the core issues that these small business owners raised is that they feel like there is no centralized place for them to go to understand what rules and regulations affect their businesses. And it gets particularly complicated when you operate across state lines, which many of them do, and it gets particularly complicated if you operate internationally, which a few of the folks who we met with do. And so one of the things that we've talked a little bit about is having some form of a central repository that would enable small business owners to more quickly, easily, and efficiently be able to assess and understand which rules and regulations affect them and which rules and regulations they need to care about. Now, that's akin to a federal registrar. It's separate from some of the issues that were raised around minimum wage, which I think is much more a reflection of small business owners not always feeling like they necessarily have a voice at the table when policy decisions are being made or that the effects on them are as well understood by policymakers as they would like.
1: We heard a lot about frustration around frequent rule changes and fines. Here's Marjorie Perry, who owns MZM Construction in northern New Jersey, and Danny Garcia, who owns Salsa Express here in New York City.
2: Every time a new mayor comes in, a new governor comes in, every four years, stuff's going to change. They held up a million-dollar check for four months. There was a new rule that came out that nobody translated down, but nobody inside knew how to do it yet because it just came out. So here you go. A check is being held for a million dollars that I can't get because I have to now
3: go get trained on this process that they said is required on that particular contract.
1: What I do find onerous in the marketplace is the fire department comes in and all of a sudden there was a regulation that changed and That's I have right. to spend $25,000 or the Department of Sanitation decided, <laughs> no, you can't put your container here, you have to put it there, $500. So or Department of Health comes years. in and something shifted. We didn't know about it and they're heavy fines. And versus supporting us in that, uh, sometimes with the fire department if you correct something, Within 30 days or 60 days, you know, there's no fee. More of that, (laughs) you know, helping versus punitive would make a difference. So, Steve, you know, politicians change, rules change. What can be done about these issues that Marjorie and Danny are talking about?
3: Well, there's a couple things you can do. One, you can make it easier to find out what the rules are. Amanda just talked about actually having a register where you can find out the rules. It's a sad commentary that knowing the rules can be a competitive advantage. That should be a baseline, not something you have to compete for. The second thing is that sometimes politicians will say, well, we'll exempt small businesses from the rule. That sounds good, and in some cases it really does help. In some cases it makes it worse. One of the complaints you heard from a lot of the small businesses was every time they go to bid for a contract, They're first to certify themselves with whoever they're bidding. They have to prove they're a small business. They have to prove they can deal with money laundering. They have to prove that they don't bribe foreign officials. They have to prove that they're a minority. That's because when Congress exempted them from those rules, they didn't exempt the corporations who hire them from those rules. And as a result, they had to prove it to every single person who hired them. What you really need is sort of a common credentialization process where you only have to prove it once would help a lot.
1: Right. So each company is putting its own rules out to its subcontractors, and it's just a mess if you're trying to be a subcontractor.
3: Instead of having to fill out one form with the government, you were exempted. So now you have to do it 45 times every time you bid for a contract. Yeah.
1: Let's talk a little bit more about Red Tape. Here's how Red Tape actually changed one entrepreneur's business plan. Deke a small business makes meat pies in Seattle. Let's listen.
4: My original growth opportunity was I wanted to go into wholesale and uh, I wanted to do everything from um, you know, a little coffee shop that wanted to sell meat pies and didn't have the capacity to make them, maybe all the way up to grocery stores. Um, and to sell retail, uh, I have to be inspected by our county health department, and that's fine, and I've done that. To sell wholesale, though, at any level, even if I sell 10 meat pies to a coffee shop a block away, I have to be inspected by the USDA and that involves months of paperwork. I can't produce anything except on the schedule that they allow me to. I struggled to find a way around that, and uh, for the moment, I've uh, given up, and I've changed my growth opportunity to go into uh, to more uh, different kinds of retail instead.
1: So Deke Control out of Seattle changes his entire business plan because of regulation. Obviously, that wasn't the intent of the regulation, but what
3: happened? This goes back to what we talked about before, where the rules become a source of competitive advantage. Large corporations always have an easier time meeting the rules. They have departments of lawyers. They have compliance departments. They have operations departments. And so every time there's a new rule, they mobilize a new group of people to meet that rule. When it's a small business, and Amanda made this point earlier, it's the CEO has to do it. Imagine if every time there was a new banking rule, the CEO of the bank had to go rearrange their day to deal with it. Or every time a manufacturer's rules were changed, the CEO had to go down to the factory floor to adjust the machines. You'd get a very different response. That's the kinds of things that Congress and the states just need to be more conscious of. They need to understand what they're doing to these businesses and create rule sets that allow for that diversity.
2: And By the way, that's if the small business owner actually understands that something should have changed on the factory floor.
3: Yeah, And, and that goes
2: back to the difficulty of actually finding and assessing all of the relevant right. and applicable rules.
1: They're powerful stories, but are they really representative or just fit into this narrative around red tape and regulation hampering small business?
2: I think they're broadly very representative of what we think small business owners face across the country today. One of the things that surprised me going in when Steve and our team initially set out to conduct this research We went about looking at why the economic recovery after the crisis felt uneven, even though the underlying data were firming up and actually improving. And we didn't expect to find that small businesses were an underlying issue, but it popped up in the data as we did our work. And so for me, I do think it's representative, and I do think they're common themes that you hear.
3: I also think it's more than representative. I think it actually is important one level past that. These are the companies that want to grow. These are the ones that want to create new jobs. And that's what they're facing. When you join 10,000 Small Businesses Program, it's about wanting to grow. So they may not be representative of every small business, but they're representative of the small businesses that matter for growth and that actually change the dynamics of the economy. And when you look at society in a broader context, you know, we spent a lot of time looking at disruption, technology, globalization, and what that meant. And one of the things that it always meant is it sort of repeated classic factory type work is very hard to keep, right? It's the easiest thing to automate. It's the easiest place for AI to intervene. It's the easiest place to put offshore. What typically replaces that is small businesses. And so that when you hurt the small business sector, you're also changing your ability to adapt to change. It's your ability to evolve to the new condition that typically is done by small businesses thinking new things, being out of the box, and trying a different way, and being in the community and Mm -hmm. creating jobs for people who have been displaced by other business changes.
1: So at the summit, roughly 2,000 of these small business owners signed up to actually go up to Capitol Hill and... 350 meetings with members of Congress. What was that dialogue like? What kinds of solutions
3: did they discuss? One of the more amazing things about this process was when the 10,000 Small Business Summit was set up. A lot of it was about education. A lot of it was about their businesses. And the second day about going to Congress, we thought some of them would go do. The ones who were a little more politically active. Essentially, everybody went. Everybody wanted to go. Everybody wanted Congress to understand that they didn't understand small business. They wanted a decent registry of rules so they could know what the rules were. They wanted credit for what they did in terms of education and training of workers. They wanted Congress to understand that the process of changing the rules every six months was actually really damaging their ability to compete.
2: And they cared about the minimum wage.
3: And they cared about the minimum wage. So talk's easy, a lot of talk in Washington.
1: What might get done, it's always difficult to get things done in Washington, particularly right now. What's the prospect for new policies in this space, or maybe getting rid of old policies?
3: I think the prospects on two fronts are reasonably good in the sense of they're not hard to do. Taking a look at the consumer lending standards and creating allowances for loans to entrepreneurs is not that complicated a task. You simply have to create the consensus to do it. Common registries, both for certifications and information, are very easy to do, particularly in the modern world. But again, it takes focus. And I think that's going to be the critical element. Can you get Congress to focus on the issue long enough to do those things? It's not that they're hard. Some of the stuff that Congress deals with is very, very hard, very complicated. This isn't that. This is a question of can you get the focus because small businesses typically aren't there. They're not big donors. They don't have lobbyists they don't have the normal mechanisms that drive Washington. And so they're easier to miss and they're easier to forget.
1: So there's one story from the focus groups, Amanda, that really stood out. Jeff McDowell owns a security services firm in Birmingham, Alabama. Let's listen to what he had to say when you asked him about the value of being a small
0: business owner. I have a young lady that came to work for me. At the time, she was 19 years old, about a year out of high school. And I was needing a part-time assistant receptionist there for my office cuz we were th- still you know early growth stage and you know you could talk to her and you could tell that she had b- never really been encouraged in her life and when I'd say hey what's your plan for the future well I don't know I don't think I really ha- I can do anything and just that was the response I got and about 2 or 3 months later we had a, a managers meeting at the office and I said okay I want everybody to write out your vision of where you see yourself a year from now just take five minutes and just start writing. And I read hers afterwards, and she said that she just, you know, her, she could see herself being the, the go-to assistant, the one that was always reliable, and that people knew she was capable of doing her job, and that they depended on her. And about seven months later, uh, as I, I called her into my office to give her her business cards, because now she's the compliance manager for our company at 20 years old, and I put that vision in front of her. And I said, "Hey, I want you to read this for me." And she read it, and I mean, I just saw her tear up and started crying, and I started crying with her. I'm dead gumming. <laughs> I just love seeing people grow like that, and to see that the transformation with her, and to hear her now interacting with people on the phone, trying to get them licensed, and talking to the state of Alabama, you know, the security regulatory board, and you wouldn't know she's a 20 year old. You wouldn't know that somebody's told her in the past that she couldn't do anything. She'll stand up and she'll stand her ground, and, and, and I love it. And I just want to do that more. And I want to do that more and more and more because it's empowering when you see people do that to know that you had a role in that.
1: Man, what does that story tell us about what small businesses can do?
2: We talk all the time about what it is that small businesses contribute to their communities, but it doesn't get more tangible than that. It's one thing to look at the statistics, even from our own work and from our own surveys, and to say that small businesses employ people who might otherwise not be able to find employment. But they really, truly invest in their people. I was in the room with Jeff when he shared the story, and he wasn't alone. The other business owners around the table all had similar stories where They had picked people who otherwise probably would not have gotten a shot at that job or even been fully employable. And they had invested in them and given them a chance and spent time training them, mentoring them, thinking about their futures, helping them plot a path forward and helping them think about what that looked like. And on the other side of it, these business owners had some really tremendous success stories. For me, that is probably the most tangible, real example you can get of what it means when we say that small businesses have a real impact on their local communities and on social mobility.
1: Well, as John Rogers, who runs the Goldman Sachs Foundation, likes to say, there's nothing small about small businesses. Steve Strongen, Amanda Hinlian, thank you very much for joining me today.
2: Thanks for having us. Thanks.
1: And of course, our thanks to the millions of small business owners out there across the country who are such crucial drivers of innovation and economic dynamism and changing lives. That's all for this edition of Exchanges Goldman Sachs. If you want to learn a little bit more about the Goldman Sachs 10,000 Small Businesses Program, go to gs.com 10ksb. Thanks for listening. Be sure to join us again next time.
4: This podcast was recorded on March 9th, 2018. All price references and market forecasts correspond to the date of this recording. This podcast should not be copied, distributed, published, or reproduced in whole or in part. The information contained in this podcast does not constitute research or a recommendation from any Goldman Sachs entity to the listener.